Hi, my name is Jeremy Lightning, and blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. Uh, welcome to the Thirsty Podcast. I'm here with Pastor Michael Zarling. And in case you can't tell, I'm just starting to get my voice back. There have been some crazy tree allergies uh, that have flared up for me this past uh, weekend, or actually early this week. And uh, I lost my voice for two for a day and a half of teaching, uh, but now I have it somewhat back. So I thought we could do this recording, and we'll look today at Hosea chapters thirteen and fourteen, and the first three chapters of Second Corinthians. So, Pastor Lightning, I wanted to focus first on verse two of Hosea thirteen. It says. It said about them, the ones who sacrifice are humans who kiss calves. Uh, I don't want to talk about cow cuddling anymore. Okay, we how about cow kissing then? Uh, that here's what what Hosea is talking about is Israel had adopted worship of Baal and Asherah and golden calves, but along with that, they also adopted their so- ceremonies. And they also adopted human sacrifice. Because another way of translating this verse is they offer human sacrifice and kiss calves. And so what they're talking about there is uh, another way of describing this in Scripture is uh, they made their sons and daughters pass through the fire. Kissing an image of Baal was another way of expressing uh, devotion to their Canaanite gods. Uh and we can apply this verse again to our nation, that we sacrifice our infants to the God of ease and to consequences. We kiss idols of our own making. We sacrifice our unborn to our high standard of living, to avoid the inconvenience of family, or just to enjoy the pleasures of sexual intercourse without responsibility of uh, providing for a child. And so we kiss our God's named comfort, convenience, and pleasure. And you're not even talking about uh, abortion necessarily. You're talking about people wanting to maintain a certain lifestyle and children are a huge drain on the finances. And Well, I, I, am, th- I am thinking also on abortion and sure. those are reasons why people call it abortion or infanticide. Yeah. Um, in that same verse, uh, it just struck me that... It, the the wording that Hosea uses is not um, what do you call it? Pass. It's not active. It's passive. It is said about them. So it doesn't really specify who is the one saying this. And uh, the thought just occurred to me that uh, what if this is uh, God telling us what uh, the demons are saying about it? this? Is something that. Uh, demons like to do a lot of is uh, make a mockery of humans when we act in the exact opposite way that God has created us to act. Uh, it's like a big joke for them. And may- maybe this is uh, the demons saying to one another, oh, look at those foolish humans sacrificing their children or kissing kissing statues. And then God is rightly upset, uh, justifiably so. Verses 7 and 8 It says, so I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lurk among them. I will come upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear the cover off their hearts. Then I will devour them like a lioness. The wild animals will rip them apart. This is a pretty fierce description of our God. Uh, 
God does not just pretend to hate sin in order to get us to stop doing it. It's like uh, the dad with the crabby kid, and he says, stop doing that. One, two, three. No, I'm serious. You really need to stop doing that or you're going to get in trouble. I remember being in a clothing store and hearing a dad say to his 10 or 12-year-old son, you are the most disrespectful kid I know. And I'm just thinking to myself, you're the dad. Do something about it. Uh, What God is talking about here is that he is our Heavenly Father who hates sin. He is burning with ferocity, and forgetting this cheapens the sacrifice of Christ, who satisfied his justice by bearing God's wrath against us. As we are listening to all of these uh, threats from God and uh, condemnation and punishment, it's worth noting the little ray of sunshine that pokes through in verse 4. Uh, yeah, the spirit of it is not to worship idols, or it's a, a command of uh, against uh, idolatry. But uh, it says, "You must not acknowledge any god except me. There is no savior except me." So he pretty clearly calls himself a savior right out front and up in the open. Uh, so maybe as you're looking at all these verses about him being a wild animal or a lion that's tearing its enemies apart. Uh, he's also a savior that uses that force for your good. And, and he talks about that in verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Death, where are your plagues? Grave, where is your destruction? Paul quotes that verse in 1 Corinthians 15. We spent some time on it a few weeks ago. Uh, ransom, redeem. Hosea is using the image of a kinsman redeemer. And to think of a kinsman redeemer, think of Boaz, that he was the kinsman redeemer for for Ruth, that he was able to buy her back. And a kinsman redeemer would buy the family property before it passed into the prop, into the possession of someone else. And so God is willing to buy his people back. And you you know what my favorite way of translating that term is, which you should also appreciate. Okay. The Avenger. Ah, there you go. And that's what our God is, is he is an Avenger of blood for us. Um, he, he shed his own blood, but also uh, there are plenty of passages that talk in the Bible about God uh, bringing vengeance upon the people who have harmed his people. And uh, when you belong to him through baptism, uh, you are you are his own child. And he says, anybody who touches you is touching the uh, apple of my eye. I'm not going to let that. I'm not going to let that happen. Yeah. What he's saying there is that even though Israel as a nation is going to die, they're going to be carried off into captivity. Some will die at the hands of the Assyrians. Every one of them is that's left is going to die in exile in the Assyrian kingdom. And yet God will buy them back for himself from the power of death and the grave. I don't think we need to spend too much time getting into the graphic details of uh, ancient warfare. Uh, Modern warfare isn't uh, any more pleasant, uh, but uh, it was much more in, in front of people in their, in their eyes, in their eyesight and uh, in their thinking 
when uh, they would see their, uh, well, like it talks about the little children being dashed to the ground or the pregnant women ripped open. Um, that brings us to chapter 14. And uh, there too, we, we have uh, plenty to talk about. And one of the things I wanted to point out is one of our listeners uh, posted this on Facebook in, in a comment. And uh, if if you're listening, feel free to uh, make comments. And you know, I'm on Facebook more Facebook more than Pastor Lighten is. You know, it's true. We we read those things, but she commented how you know I I was happy that we're finally done with Hosea, and she was too because she said, well it seems like it's repetitive. It's the same. And I said, yeah, it is. And that's because the Israelites didn't get it, nor do we get it. And that's why he, uh, through Hosea, it says the same thing over and over again with different language, but it all kind of culminates in chapter 14. Uh, chapter 14 uh, gives us in verse two, a good thing to remember as you go about praying. Uh, one of the things that a lot of uh, American evangelicals will uh, think, they'll tend to think that it's not really praying if you're saying a, uh, a memorized prayer or if you're, you're using a, you know, a prayer that somebody else wrote. And uh, verse 2 gives you a very good example of how it is a God-pleasing thing to recite a prayer that you have repeated many times throughout your life or to say words that other people have written. Uh, Verse 2 says, Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Forgive all our guilt and receive us graciously and let us present the fruit of our lips as bowls. Um, uh, I'd like to talk about those the the bulls too as well, but uh, I think the main point for starters is uh, it's a good thing and it's a God pleasing thing to uh, use a prayer that has been memorized or that has been repeated. Yeah, I was going to focus on the same verse that God gives us, well, gave the Israelites the exact words to say back to Him, and there I thought of my wife Shelley that you know, when our daughters were young, you know. When they're first learning how to speak, do uh, you know what their the first word is? What do you think the first word is that she taught them to say? Uh, I, I would. My gut instinct was to say "mama" or "dada." It was "dada." You know why? Is so that when they woke up at night crying, <laughs> the only word they knew how to say was "daddy," and so she got to sleep in, and dad got to take care of them. She's a smart, smart woman. She is a smart woman. Uh, but and so God gives us the right words to say back to him too. And and that's like what you were saying, Pastor Lightning, is the words that we have been given. Think of our liturgies, our orders of service, that the words are there for the confession of sins, uh, that we use the Psalms and we can pray them back to him. We can use words like the uh the tax collector, Lord have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, the key is God gives us the right words to say in our confession and our prayers. Just say those over and over again back to him. And, and I mentioned the uh, mainstream Christianity that kind of thinks that way about prayers, that it's it's only it only counts or it's only true, sincere, if you are always praying off the top of your head or ex corde. Uh, I have a friend who has done some research and said that actually they found that... Um, even when you're saying ex corde prayers, 
you still end up falling into patterns of speech that are repetitive. Um, and, uh, and so I think another good thing in this verse to talk about is how the uh, fruit of our lips is a sacrifice to God, um, that uh, it's a good thing when you have um, uh, poets, uh, people who can uh, put words together well, that we should encourage that. And uh, I think I even wanted to mention that I finally, did I, did I mention that I got a chance to meet the uh, young man that uh, writes poetry for our congregation here? Oh, no, Gavin. Yes, yes. Oh, I, I got to know him a little bit, and uh, it was very nice to talk with him and his, and his mom, and um, uh, that's, that's something to be encouraged. Um, and, and bulls, the only point I wanted to make about that is uh, think of the cost, if you're in any kind of a farming community, think of the cost of a tractor. Now think of donating that amount of money to the church. That's, that's kind of what they were doing when they offered bulls uh, in the Old Testament. That was, your, that was your big heavy machinery. And so, like we talked about before, God says over and over again through his prophet that he's angry with the Israelites. And yet he says at the end of verse 4, For my anger has turned away from them. I will be refreshing like dew to Israel. And while you and I might find dew to be an annoyance in the morning, to be walking on wet grass, we have to understand that uh, in Israel, the crops would not have survived the dry seasons if there was not abundant dew. So, Pastor Lightning, uh, the other day I had to put down some weed and feed on my lawn. And this time I actually read the directions. I know it was kind of a very unmanlike thing to do. <laughs> But I read the directions, and it said, "Well, you need the grass to be wet." Well, I'm just I'm just looking at verse nine, and I, it says, "Who is wise? Let him understand these things." So uh, that's that's good that you're reading the directions. <laughs> it was good. Uh, I felt guilty, like I had a hand in my man card or something. Uh, no, not at all. Okay, but I I uh, wanted to do it early in the morning while the dew was there. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think my neighbors would have appreciated that too much, but. Uh, to use that dew, that's what the Israelites would have been uh, used to. And they would have cherished that dew because they would have gone for months without rain. That I, that's something that I think of. I like to grow plants in our yard or in our garden. And uh, it's always a question of, well, did it rain or not? And then you have to water. Uh, well, uh, if there's dew on the ground, then you, you're you're at least have some relief of having known that maybe you don't, it's okay if you skip watering that day. Uh, And then I wanted to finish up with this thought that one of the most vivid and unforgettable preachings of the law for Hosea's audience was in the first chapter talking about Hosea's children. Uh, And to think of the, the gospel counterparts in the stinging judgments pronounced in their names. If you remember, lo ruhamaha means not loved. But now God says, I will love them freely. Uh, Another one of his children was lo ami, which means not my people. But now God says, for my anger has turned away from them. So that's saying, now you're my people. And then Jezreel was the firstborn son. His name was synonymous with the place of death and destruction. But in verses 5 through 8 of this chapter, 
Israel be, will become a place of blessing, sowing, and harvesting. I think I'm ready to move on to Second uh, Corinthians, if you are. I am ready to go on to Second Corinthians. Uh, this was described to me once, t- one time as uh, the most personal that uh, the Apostle Paul ever gets in any of his letters. He, he just really makes himself vulnerable and opens up his heart and uh, in a lot of ways talks about his feelings more than in any other letter. So maybe, maybe he would be worried about handing in his man card with uh, <laughs> talking about his feelings so much. But obviously not. The Holy Spirit inspired uh, these words and... Uh, I don't know if you had any introductory thoughts on them. I know Pastor Hagen had a good introduction for the first two chapters. Uh, So Paul is working in Macedonia. Uh, You'll see in the the first two chapters especially that uh, he wanted to get to Corinth earlier than he did, but things came up, especially in Ephesus with the riots and so forth, that it, it pushed it back. But then he says... It was actually a good thing because it would have been embarrassing for you if I would have come because they were dealing with the whole member who was in an incestuous relationship with his stepmom. And so it was better for him that Timothy was there, or Titus was there, uh, working, and uh, Paul is later is late in coming. Uh, the chapter 1 opens with um, a benediction. I guess you could say, uh, when he talks about, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Um, I used this next verse once in the first uh, conference paper that I ever wrote to talk about how it's important for us all to make use of private confession and absolution uh, so that, uh, as particularly as pastors, when we get uh, forgiven privately, uh, then we are also able to comfort those uh, who come to us for forgiveness uh, with uh, the comfort we have received from God. And uh, and then maybe just one other thing in chapter one that I like to point out. Uh, are you are you the type that tells people that God won't give you more than you can handle? You know, we just talked about that on Tuesday in my seventh grade catechism class. Okay. Uh, but again, are you the type that would say that or not say that? Well, I would never say that. Okay. Thank you. Because uh, I think some people think that's in the Bible. And Second Corinthians 1 uh, tells us quite the opposite that um, in, uh, oh yeah, verse 8. Uh, Paul says, we were burdened so greatly, so far beyond our ability to bear it, that we even gave up hope of living. Um, That sounds to me like he's saying, God gave us way more than we could handle. Uh, And the right way to put it is, God won't give you more than he can handle. Yeah, we did talk about that exact question Tuesday in catechism class, and I asked the students, can't, will God give you more than you can handle? And one of the students, who's not a member of one of our churches, said, no, he'll give you more than you can handle, so you go to him. Said, That's awesome. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. So that, uh, that was fantastic. And what you're talking about in verse 8 of uh, the trouble that came to Paul and his companions in the province of Asia, that it probably is... Uh, referring to what happened in Ephesus when you had Demetrius and the other silversmiths that caused a riot in the city. 
where a number of Paul's companions were seized. Paul ended up being protected by some friends, but yeah, their lives were at risk. And then like you said too about that, <clears throat> uh, the verses about comfort, Paul uses some form of the word comfort 10 times in these opening verses. So it's obviously very important. Uh, and we are comforted so that we can give comfort to others, whether that's you know, a husband and wife in the sermon text I preached two weeks ago from, uh, from Ecclesiastes of being able to keep each other warm at night. And that's not just you know, not stealing the blanket, but just being mm-hmm. there for each other or preaching resurrection comfort at a funeral uh, and going to our homebound members and giving them comfort, just loving them and being there for them. Or yesterday I was able to talk to a father of two young children and explain the power of baptism to him. And so giving comfort because I've been comforted. And the same for all of you who are listening. God has given you comfort and there's so many hurting and lost and despairing people out there. They need the only thing that you need to give them, which is God's comfort. And the other thing that people need and are craving and looking for these days is certainty. Uh, in fact, certainty is a very comforting thing. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is uh, hopefully going to lead into a discussion of the uh, verses 17 and 18 and onward uh, in chapter 1, where uh Paul says to the Corinthians, uh, do you think that when I made my plans, I was sort of saying, well, yes and no, maybe, maybe I'll come, maybe I won't, um, as if there's uncertainty about it. Um, and, and he's saying, no, there is nothing but certainty, no matter how we uh, proceed in life. Uh, so God puts his amen on our yes, our yes in him, the yes stands firm. Uh, and as many promises as God has made, they have always been yes in him. Uh, for that reason, we also say amen through him to the glory of God. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to leave it at that and, and let you say a few things here. Well, yeah, exactly what you were saying with the Paul is trying to show that he's not being wishy-washy because that's what the, his opponents in Corinth are saying. See, Paul said he was coming and he didn't come. Uh, don't if you're not going to trust him then with these little things, then you don't need to trust him with the big things. That's what he, they're getting at. And Paul is saying, no, um, my yes is yes and my no is no. And I, I would apply that to uh, the confirmands. So we were blessed this past Sunday to have 15 confirmands. Pastor Lightning's son Gabriel was one of them. And uh, I, I challenged them not to be not to become a confirmation picture on the wall in our church basement. Uh, I, I held up their promise. They're saying, yes, I want to be faithful to the point of death. And the same is true for all of us, that you need to be faithful in the little things in life, and then you can be faithful in the big things. You know, be faithful in just picking up your kids, uh, taking the dog out for a walk, all the little things that you vow to do on a daily basis. Even if it's just saying, I'm going to get up and exercise or read my Bible and put the phone down for a few more minutes every day. Be faithful in those things and then the big things like being faithful to the end of 
life with your faith, those things will come. Your yes will be yes, and your no, no, as Jesus says. Well, right, and I was just going to refer to that. That's kind of what Jesus was saying. You, you don't have to uh, write a whole bunch of New Year's resolutions or make a bunch of oaths uh, to, to promise great things if you just have a, a regular lifestyle of being consistent and, and following through. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. The last thing I was going to point out is in verses 21 and 22, uh, Paul piles up some language there. He says, God is the one who makes both us and you to be strong in Christ. He anointed us. He sealed us as his own and gave us the spirit as the down payment in our hearts. Uh, So he's talking about uh, a person being anointed with oil to be chosen as a prophet, priest, or king. Uh, An official would put a seal on a document to mark it as genuine. And a down payment was something of a promise that uh, the rest of the payment would follow. And Paul is using these similes to assure his readers that by giving them the Holy Spirit, God had made them strong in Christ with the assurance that their promises would never fail. And that's the key for you. God has anointed you. Uh, He has put a down payment on you. He has put his seal on all of you who are listening and now stand firm in that Christian identity. Don't give up. Have we ventured into chapter two now? Now we are. Okay. Uh, now I'm going to do this slowly because I'm, I'm throwing you a curveball here. Um, it, what's happening in, in this chapter is we're, we're going to talk about uh, a specific case that was going on in the Corinthian congregation. And it came as a bit of a curveball to me uh, a couple of years ago when uh, we had a summer school where one of my former Greek professors presented at it and uh, ended up saying something that I had never heard before, which is that it's quite, it, it seemed most likely to him that the case mentioned in verse 5 and onward of chapter 2 is not actually the uh, incest case from 1 Corinthians. And I think there's some good arguments made along those lines uh, because for one thing, uh, in verse 5, it's, uh, Paul is talking about somebody doing something particularly to him and he's saying, he has, whoever this is, has not done it to me, but to all of you. In other words, it seems to indicate some kind of personal attack against Paul, uh, maybe by a member of the congregation who was being persuaded by the uh, um, hyper, what were the false apostles, the hyper apostles or super apostles. Maybe there was a member of a congregation that was being a little too much influenced by the uh, false teachers that were in, invading the Corinthian church and made some kind of personal attack against Paul. Uh, and uh, that I think there's a good case to be made that this is a different instance than the one who was committing incest in first Corinthians. Either way, the main point is that Paul talks here about forgiveness and about uh, how to speak forgiveness and announce forgiveness to those who need it. And I think they're talking about forgiveness. I'm reminded of a dear uh, older lady, a shut-in, uh, many years ago in our congregation that 
she had a bit of dementia. So every time I went to visit her, she would say, now, Pastor, you know it says in the Lord's Prayer, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. I said, yes, you're right. But every time she would remind me of this. Well, it happened that uh, someone broke into her home one evening to steal things. Well, she was there as an elderly lady. And he ended up trying to kill her. He took her pillow and tried smothering her. Now, she lived, but, you know, she had bruises all over her face. She had all kinds of damage and so forth. I'm sure it was difficult for her then to forgive as the Lord had forgiven her. You know, I didn't remind her of, hey, remember all the times you would remind uh, me of that uh, fifth petition, forgive yeah. us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But that's what Paul's talking about here is that... Uh, whatever the sin was, uh, he's telling the Corinthians, you did church discipline. And that's hard. You pointed out the sin. Now you need to uh, offer that person forgiveness. Otherwise, he says in verse 11, that they're going to be overwhelmed with despair. And then the devil, the Satan's schemes are going to win. Because if the Corinthians had not forgiven the man... Satan would have won the, the battle by leading the man into despair. And Paul wanted to avoid that tragedy as much as he wanted to keep Satan from gaining the man's soul through unrepentant sin. When he ends with that note, we are certainly not unaware of his schemes. Um, again, it, it brings me back to the spiritual warfare and, and uh, the activity of the demons, because this is what Satan wants more than anything, is for people to be unnecessarily burdened with guilt. There does come a time when, uh, well, as Hosea showed us over and over, people do need to hear God's threats and they do need to be uh, declared guilty of their sin. Uh, but when they realize it and they are grieving for their wrongdoing, uh, it becomes a tool of Satan when they are not set free from that through the speaking of forgiveness. And there, I think, uh, focus on two of knowing Satan's schemes. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 11. We are certainly not unaware of his schemes. Just think of what's going on possibly in your church right now, that maybe there's division about this whole thing with masks and so forth, that some churches have seemed to be rather legalistic in saying people have to wear masks or you can't come. Others are more open, but then you know, some people feel like if they're wearing masks, well, they're, they're caring about other people. And the people that aren't wearing masks are uh, not as loving as they are. The people that are, wear, are not wearing masks, they might feel, well, we're trusting God more. We're, we're enjoying our freedom more. And what does the devil do? Does he care one way or another? Yeah. Not one bit. All mm. he wants is he doesn't care whether someone wears masks or doesn't wear masks. He cares that Christians are fighting with each other and even if they don't say it, they're thinking it. And mm -hmm. they're thinking, well, that person thinks this about me or that person thinks that about me. And the devil is winning. And so what we need to do, no matter what side we're on, is just repent of our legalism and or our proud freedom and then be willing to forgive others in Christ. And that way, we understand where the devil is scheming and Christ and his cross and his forgiveness, it thwarts it. Mm -hmm. um, it, 
and and it, living in that forgiveness or or living with that forgiving kind of a mind it doesn't even have to mean that you then say to the to the person across the aisle from you well i forgive you you know i forgive you for being unloving or i forgive you for not being trusting enough um it it can simply be a mindset that you have that i'm i'm going to be patient i'm going to uh overlook uh, love covers over a multitude of wrongs. Um, yeah. Uh, in the closing verses of uh, chapter two, um, you really need to know a thing or two about ancient Roman culture, uh, because what Paul is describing, he doesn't come out and hit you right between the eyes with it, but he's very clearly describing something that would have been known to, uh, Greco Roman culture as a triumph. Um, a triumph was simply a, a parade. It usually lasted several days, and they would have a triumph whenever the enemy uh, in, a, in a battle or, or a war was ended, and they would take the, uh, you know, all the treasures from the uh, culture that they had uh, defeated. They would take all the prisoners of war, the soldiers, and then finally at the end of the parade would come the uh, king's or the the leaders and nobility of the state that they had defeated in battle. And uh, what was happening was that uh, there would be all kinds of incense burning and flower petals, uh, wonderful smells flying through the air. Uh, and the people who had conquered the other nation would think, oh, this is such a wonderful smell. It means we're the winners. And then the people in the parade, the conquered soldiers and, and the king of the defeated nation would think, oh, what a wonderful smell. It means I'm about to die soon uh, because that's what they would do then at the end of the parade. They would execute the, the heads of state of their, of their enemies. And uh, this is what Paul is talking about when he talks about the odor of death and uh, the odor of life, that this is what the uh, gospel is for the people who hear it and believe it and the people who hear it and reject it. And there, Pastor Layton, I was thinking about that fragrance. Uh, this would have been your first Easter with us. What did you think of our uh, living cross that we had up for the Easter vigil and the Easter service? Uh, Do you remember it? I I'm okay. Vaguely remember. I'll, I'll explain it to you and all of our listeners. Is that's so, fair. I threw you a curveball, right? So what we have at, at our congregation, and this has been going on well before I became the pastor here. So we have a beautiful stained glass window above our altar of the Good Shepherd. But for Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, it's covered, and then there's a, a cross on it. But then uh, it gets changed for the Easter vigil Saturday night and the Easter Sunday service, then it has a very light cross on it with styrofoam that you can't see, but then it's covered with Easter lilies and white carnations. So it fills the church with this fragrance. And, you know, the fragrance tickles the olfactory senses of our noses. And for Christians who believe in the resurrection, it's like Pastor Lightning said, it should be the fragrance of victory, something we look forward to smelling every year. But if there are if there are unbelievers who are smelling the Easter lilies, whether it's in church or in the store or at the cemetery, well, then that smell is a reminder 
of death, death for them and the death for their loved ones who are not Christians, who are now gone forever, lost because of their unbelief. Well, um, there is uh, ever so much that I'd like to talk about in chapter three. Um, I don't know if the, if we'll have time to do that. Um, even at the end of chapter two, I think there's plenty to say about the mentality of trying to peddle the word of God for profit, thinking that uh, you have to be a salesman of God's word. Uh, there's a lot we could say about that. But uh, uh, how much more time would you like to spend uh, taking a look at chapter three? You spend as much time on it as you like, because I only had one point I wanted to bring up. So you, you go for it. In, for, in Second Corinthians three? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, why don't you make your point first and I'll, I'll, I'll finish, I'll finish with it. Well, my, my thing is I just wanted to point out, uh, you know, what is the point of chapter three? To me, I picked up that the law is great and important, but the gospel is glorious as Paul is making this comparison between law and gospel, between the old covenant given through Moses and the new covenant, which is Christ. As he's talking about Moses wearing a veil, uh, as he uh, sees the people after he's been in the presence of God and his face is glowing. Uh, So I just want to talk about law and gospel. So the law we teach our young people is an SOS signal. It is shows our sin which is followed by the gospel, which is an SOS signal of shows our Savior. And if you don't have the law, you don't appreciate the gospel. I always teach people that my job as a pastor is to make people squirm in their pews, that they should feel uncomfortable that the flames of hell are licking the soles of their feet. But then, giving them the gospel, it should be soothing, a balm, a salve, and it feels like they're walking in the green pastures of paradise. And so uh, as pastors, and I want you as listeners to listen to your pastor sermons, you should hear law and gospel. Think of the devotions that you read on your own or the devotions you share with your family. There should be law and gospel. And it's really good with certain texts. There'll be law, gospel, law. Law as a mirror to show you your sin gospel to show you your Savior, and then law as a guide to say, now as a forgiven and redeemed child of God, this is how you live. Yeah, I don't know if I could uh, add any more to that. That's a a great summary of the chapter. It's talking all about uh, law and gospel, or as Paul calls it, he has a kind of a nickname for the law and the gospel, the spirit and the letter. The letter is the law that kills uh, and the Spirit is the good news of the gospel that gives life. Doesn't just have to mean the Holy Spirit. It could also mean the the Spirit of the words or what what is being said on the page by the letters. Um, there, that is good news, and it gives life. Um, I guess the only other thought that I had on this chapter for now is uh, of my dad. And uh, I bring him up, uh, first of all, because as Pastor Zarling mentioned, our son got confirmed this weekend, and uh, my parents were giving me a hard time when they came to visit about uh, spending a whole two minutes 
brushing my teeth, uh, <laughs> which uh, I, this is what dentists recommend. But I mean, I guess that's kind of weird. So if my parents say that, then uh, that's not even the point I'm trying to make. Uh, my dad uh, preached for my uh, ordination uh, when I was installed as pastor at uh, St. Matthew's in Benton Harbor. And I remember him picking these verses from First uh, Second Corinthians 3, 1, 1 through uh, 3 about was what it was. Um, and I remember thinking, Dad, that's kind of a weird text to preach on. That is a weird text to preach on. And, and he told me actually the same thing uh, when he... Uh, before he did it. And then when he was preaching on it, I was thinking these things, but over the years, like him, I, I've sort of started to understand it's true when you have a, a congregation, uh, that is wondering about a new pastor that they are receiving. Um, they're wanting assurance and they're wanting some kind of certificate or as Paul puts it, letters of commendation. And, and he says, the fact that you're here is a letter the fact that a congregation gathers to hear the preacher speak, that's, that's a letter written on human hearts. Uh, and that, that really is a wonderful thing to think about, whether it's a new pastor or a returning pastor, uh, that the fact that there are people there at all to hear God's word preached uh, testifies to the good news of Christ. So Pastor Lightning, talking about letters of recommendation to be able to preach, where is your... Uh, your diploma, your certificate, from where is it hanging from seminary? From seminary, uh, I, I, that would, I would have to do a little digging for that. What I do put on my wall in my classroom right now is my divine call. Um, I, I post that one, but uh, my college degree and my seminary degree, I'm not sure where those are right now. Oh, see, I know where mine are because I'm looking at them right now. That's true. I've got my... College and seminary degree, my call, you know, my previous call to Epiphany, I need to put up the new call to Water of Life. But it made me think of this as you were talking about calls. I remember from the seminary, uh, I'll be honest, there was, this was a professor that uh, it was hard to stay awake in his class. It was really, really hard. I've never been those kind of professors at the seminary. What are you talking well, about? Well, there was one. <laughs> <laughs> and Or maybe it was just me. But anyhow... I, I remember one thing that he said, and it stuck with me all these years later, you know, over 25 years in the ministry now, is he said, what makes you a pastor and gives you the right to baptize and preach and confirm and all those other things is not your degree from the seminary. Mm. He said, it's not even your call. It's your baptismal certificate. Mm. You know, because you were baptized, that gives you the right to do all of those other things. Hmm. So I just thought that was kind of a, a neat thing. And that's kind of what Paul's saying here too, is he's commending to them that they had the letter written on their hearts with their conversion and their baptism. Anything else you want to bring up in this chapter? I'm talked out. And your voice held out too. It did. Yeah, because I'm glad Pastor Lightning showed up for this because I thought I was going to be doing it alone because I wanted him to save his voice because he's preaching for us uh, the next two weeks. And then uh, he's also going to be uh, chanting the liturgy for our ascension service that I'm preaching for Thursday night. I've got a week from today to to get full strength back. But even with half strength or partial strength, people would appreciate you chanting more than having me chant. Eh, I guess. 
I don't know. Yeah. You need, you need my mom to coach you. Okay. All right. Uh, so next week, we'll spend some more time with Paul in Corinth. This is Pastor Zarling with Pastor uh, Quick Lightning. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>